Reading from 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting at verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second son, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. Set aside after gain, they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And that's what Samuel does, turning then to verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and give them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Echoing those uh, very well-known words of Charles Dickens, uh, written back in 1859 as he begins the tale of two cities, these are the best of times, and these are the worst of times. I think that rings true for us in a time like this as the pandemic comes close to an end, maybe, even as we are sensitive to the realities of surges in places like Indonesia, in India, and we're cognizant that the world still remains very fragile. Some of us see one side of that equation, don't we, more than the other side. Some of you are inveterate pessimists that see how much wrong there is. And some of you are optimists that see things better than they actually are. The interesting thing, isn't it, that optimists see pessimists as pessimists, but pessimists see themselves as realists, and vice versa, isn't it? Most marriages have one and the other. Somewhere temperamentally, we lean into seeing things through our own eyes, for good or not so good. 
in our own backyard here at Harvard an example. Two very well-known sociologists, long research projects over the last two decades, Steven Pinker, Robert Putnam. Steven Pinker, the uh, inveterate optimist, has written a series of books about how good our times are. It's remarkable, he says. Global poverty has been driven down by 80% in the last 50 years. Literacy rates are at an all-time high. The standard of living in our own time is better than the kings and queens could have dreamed about even a century ago. Statistic after statistics telling us we do live in really good times. His colleague, Robert Putnam, however, has remarkably charted how great is the increase in loneliness in our time. Gone are all those local communities of significance. The bowling league, the garden club, those small communities that held us together. We are all by ourselves increasingly, he says. Depression and suicide rates have skyrocketed. We are more polarized than ever because we are alone. Now who's right, Pinker or Putnam? Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends about what are the things that matter. What are the concerns that run deepest, ultimately? Or put another way, what do you really want? Will be a function of how you see the world. And here is the key theme that we see in this passage from 1 Samuel. When we get what we want, it's not necessarily a good thing. Or shall we cut it in half, if you will, as I think the text does for us. If we yearn for freedom, freedom from constraints, inevitably it leads to selfishness. But on the other side of that spectrum, if we learn for strong leadership, for authority, inevitably there comes a heavy-handedness which leads to abuse. How do we find, if you will, the median? It seems to me that what the gospel does is abandon both the optimist and the pessimist. 1 Samuel 8. Since the time of Moses, many generations before the time of Samuel, Yahweh had designated judges that would not rule uh, generationally, passing on, if you will, through ancestry, uh, but they would rule for a time. They would judge for a time. Some were pretty awful judges. And there was great chaos on many occasions, as we detail in the book of Judges. Every once in a while, there was an attempt to have a king and not just judges one after another. Gideon in Judges chapter 8, after defeating the Midianites, the people came and said, Gideon, you be our king and we'll follow you and all your 
children after you. Gideon resisted, knowing that there was only one king in Israel. Uh, irony is Abimelech, his son, actually tried to be the king after Gideon passed away. You recall those wonderful harsh words out of Judges 21. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Haunting words. Words that come back to us actually later in the book of Kings. And after Israel has had a series of kings, the refrain becomes, the king did what was right in their own eyes. Now, clearly, as uh, Samuel's facing this situation uh, in our passage, his two sons appointed as judges are corrupt, they're taking bribes, uh, it's not a good thing. And so the yearning is to have a single king, a, a king who would rule uh, absolutely, if you will. They wanted an authority, because without authority, chaos reigns. It does. I remember my seventh grade science class. Uh, her name was Mrs. Luther, our teacher. She was a, a really sweet lady that had absolutely no control of the classroom. And seventh grade boys, I think, in particular, um, we took enormous advantage of her. Every time she would turn around, the spitballs would start to fly. And she had, I think, if I'm using the word right, a big bouffant uh, hairdo. And the airplanes, uh, we had a contest to see who could get the airplane, uh, the paper airplanes, right into her hair. Uh, and she would turn around and there'd be all this chaos and she would just smile and it was hopeless. Um, well, without authority, chaos does reign. Organizations, whether they're businesses or churches or families, need strong leadership. It is true. But the paradox here is that the opposite is not true. That is, too strong of authority uh, leads to great trouble on the other side. Power, when it's concentrated in too few or even in just one, uh, leads to great trouble. The king, as we know, can do what is right in their own eyes. I think we live in a time where this dilemma confronts us constantly in a time where democracy itself feels chaotic. And what is the alternative? On the political spectrum, it is to have a strong authority, right? And here is the dilemma. At either end, uh, there is trouble. For at heart, on this side of paradise, we all yearn to do what is right in our own eyes. This is the dynamic of 1 Samuel. These are the books of Israel's first king, Saul, and then David, written probably around the time of the first millennium BC, several generations after Gideon. Following the decisive defeat of the Philistines, the people come to Samuel and they want a king. They want a king like the nations. 
Samuel takes this as a personal attack. Uh, His sons had acted unjustly. It sure made sense in light of the circumstances. But deep down underneath it, when they wanted to be like the nations, they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. The elders gathered at Ramah, and they asked Samuel to appoint a king, a king like the Canaanites that surrounded them, a king who could act as God, if you will. And here was the central dilemma in the request. Israel's identity was already rooted in the reality that they had a king. A king who did do what was right in his own eyes. Because this king, the ultimate king, the king of the universe alone, does what is good and true and beautiful. Israel's fears, fears about her safety, about the chaos, about her own fragile situation, uh, brought them to this deep request to find safety and security in temporal, earthly ways. We do that all the time. In whom do we trust? In whom do we hope? Where do we go when our fears overcome us? Here is the question of the text. If we are asked, so sociologists tell us, Gen Z, whom do you trust? Where is your safety? The answer is nowhere. There's no one we trust any longer. Modern institutions have let us down. Perception is that no one can be trusted, no institutions. Gene Twenge, the sociologist from uh, uh, University of San Diego, has charted this generation that has never not known having an iPhone. They spend more time online because they don't trust anything else. The boomers, my generation, have let them down. A generation, my generation, as Christopher Lash has called us, a generation of narcissists, a generation of deep selfishness. You know, the rates of depression and suicide skyrocketing, uh, as Putnam has told us, yes, uh, deep among uh, the younger generation, but the, the deepest, uh, most profound rates of increase of suicide are among the boomers, interestingly, over the last decade. A generation with everything, a generation of affluence, a generation of abundance, superficially a generation that has everything and yet a generation so deeply insecure they've tried to bolt everything down to the floor lest somebody take it security systems without number almost for your home for your cars for your boats for your library books for your clothes everything has a security system But now uh, we know none of it's really secure. In an era of cyber threats, your identity itself is no longer secure. Ours is a culture of insecurity. Even as we try to build systems and institutions to protect us, we recognize 
we will never be successful ultimately in building our own securities. Well, in Israel's urging, actually God relents and gives them a king. He tells Samuel, listen. He tells Samuel three times, actually. Listen to their voice. Obey their voice, some of the translations put it. Even as God reminds Samuel that Israel had not listened to Yahweh. Here is the irony that God's grace and mercy extended. He's going to give the people what they want. Graciously, mercifully. And their own desires will be their downfall. For the refusal to listen to God, to obey God, he equates with going after the idols. Whom shall you listen to? Whom shall you obey? You will find somebody or something that pretends to give you security and protection or significance. It might be a job. It might be your looks. It might be your friends. It might be your politics. Eventually, they will all let you down because they are all in their own way idolatrous, replacing the God in whom alone ultimately is our security and our significance. The great ironies of the 19th century was that the language of idolatry was used against Christians by those who did not believe any longer in God. We often associate this language of idolatry with paganism, with those who find some other God to worship. But here in the 19th century, it was the church that was accused across Europe in particular of idolatry by its own critics, Darwin and Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. They had claimed that Christians had created a God in their own imagination. They had tamed their God so that their own prejudices could be justified. They used God to justify slavery. They used God to justify stereotyping others who were not like them, to justify their own privilege. We do that with religion, don't we? Where we are better, so we say to ourselves, we are better than them because God is on our side, not theirs. And we end up using God as a weapon. We will still stereotype others. It runs deep in the human heart. But when we stereotype God so that he looks like us, we run great trouble. In a world at the end of the 19th century when God was increasingly diminishing in the cultural language, the question was where would they go for security and significance? If there was no thing transcendent, inevitably there's one place to go inside. And so increasingly, the emphasis was on our own human desires. Desires for affluence, desires for security, desires for comfort. 
There is a truth that we are what we yearn for. They show us who we are. But the reality here across the biblical message is that we are created to desire that which God desires. Then and only then will we flourish. It's a, it's a fine point, I, I think, here. I'm trying to say it. Our affluence is not an evil thing. It's when we hope it provides our significance and our security that it becomes its own idol. Our desire for food, for example, is a good thing, but not when it's independent of the nourishment of the soul that we so desperately need as well. When we substitute that which is temporary, which that which is ultimate, is when the trouble rides. When the desires uh, for security and significance on our own terms crowds out those deeper aspirations for God's ultimate safety and security. A little illustration. I'm reminded of an older movie, I Am Sam, it was called, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Sean Penn, you may uh, not have seen it. It's, it. it's well worth seeing, it's a little schmaltzy. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer plays a very successful lawyer who is so busy climbing the corporate ladder that she has no time for her eight-year-old son and plays itself out time and time again, thinking that that career really is for the benefit of the son who has been neglected with her time. The temporal becomes a substitute for that which he really needs, namely his mother. By contrast, Sean Penn plays a mentally challenged individual who barely can keep a job. And yet throughout the film, time and time again, he manifests this enduring love for his daughter. And it, the, the contrast is so striking, and of course that the movie's trying to provide us with a morality tale. What really is important? Often the things that seem important are not, and vice versa. We know the sad end of this story in 1 Samuel 8. They are given a king, King Saul, and King Saul is like the king of the other nations. He decides his own rules arbitrarily, and Israel is put under a yoke of Saul's own desires. Strangely, though, this is also the beginning of the biblical story of kingship. And across the rest of the Bible unfolds for us the contrast between human kings and a divine king. It starts here. God strangely uses this human institution of kingship to tell us of the contrast with his own kingship, resulting ultimately in a son of King David, namely Jesus, who in Luke 9, you go lots of other places, is anointed king of the universe. But a, a king who has come to suffer and die, he's not like the king of the nations. This is a strange king. 
It's a king that is quite the opposite of what we would expect and what we would normally desire. In Christ, our lives no longer belong to us. Not because Jesus takes your life, but because he gives you life and gives it again and again by his grace. He is the king who breaks our stereotypes. And when we try to make Jesus into the king like the nations, we run into great trouble. And religious people, those people that gather in churches like you and I, are always prone to do this sort of thing, to want a king like the nations. We want a Jesus like the nations. We want a, a king that makes us better than them, whoever they are. But the genuine gospel gives no credence to this pattern. Um, a, a poignant little quote from Tim Keller. I came across recently. He writes, to my skeptical secular friends, I say even if they cannot believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. However, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, if he really is the king, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out from the needs of the world. This King Jesus that we celebrate each Sunday turns our world upside down. It breaks the stereotypes we have of where we find significance and security. Sobering, I hope, but hopeful. In a time of a democracy like ours, we need to be reminded that our lives are not our own. That freedom is never an ultimate end. That too often when freedom is unleashed as an ultimate, it doesn't foster generosity or mercy or grace. In the crisis over the last 20 years, 9-11, recession of 08, the immigration crisis, the racial conflicts, we're reminded how fragile our times are. No matter how much we think we can secure the uh, that which we, we hope in, uh, we can't. No human authority, no amount of freedom will secure us from all these threats. The reminder as I close is that there is a larger world we belong to that we cannot see but yet is evident everywhere. And in the gospel, it is that world that opens up our desires so that what we want is fulfilled in what Jesus has given us. A final illustration 
how can we talk about kingdom and monarchy without mentioning the British invasion of American TV and movies over the last decade? From the crown to Victoria, Queen Victoria to Downton Abbey, even to Hamilton. I mean, on and on the list goes. We, we seem fascinated with the demise of the British monarchy in a time like this. Each in their own way, a reminder that kingship is fragile in an era of democracy. The old ways are vanishing. The future is open and dangerous. What institutions can we trust in when the past gives us no guidance? When things are changing all the time, in what do we hope? Every Sunday we gather together to remind ourselves what we hope in. If our ultimate trust is in ourselves, we will fail. If our ultimate trust is in others, they will let us down. Our ultimate trust alone must be in God, who allows us to see ourselves and others outside of the stereotypes, who allows us to see everyone, everyone, even those who look very different from us, as creatures with a sacred dignity, and also as creatures deeply fallen. This week at work, or in your family conversations, or in your quiet times, remind yourself that you live not simply in 2021, but you also live in eternity. You live in an eternity that is broken into time, and you have a king whom you can trust. Amen and amen.